Live from the Accessible Media Studios, this is Kelly and Company. Entertainment, lifestyle, and great conversation. It's AMI-audio's on-air community, and everyone's invited. And now, the host of today's show, Ramya Amuthan. You know, I used to think about routine. Routine? Ah, no, I'm flexible. I can sleep at whatever time, I can skip breakfast whenever I want, and I can scarf down a lunch right before the show, but um, I think that age is a big factor in coming to terms with loving, appreciating, and maybe even relying on routine. I'm not fully there yet, but it's definitely getting there. Today, I'm using a different water bottle than I do uh, five days a week, Monday to Friday, showtime comes and I know when I reach over for my water bottle, it will feel like this. And today it's not that one. I had to grab whatever water bottle was available um, and fill it up and run in. And it's just not the same. So, I mean, hopefully this doesn't affect anything on the show that you will hear, but um, I know that when I reach for my water bottle, it's going to give me a tiny bit of a jolt. So am I being a diva? Maybe, but thought I would share anyways. <laughs> Brock Richardson is joining me to host today's show. Uh, Kelly is in the background doing some things, getting prepared for the upcoming month of Kelly and Company. Lots of shifts and changes and transitions that we will keep you posted on. But for the time being, Brock, you're here to help today and I'm very excited because it's a roundtable day and I've decided that we're not jinxing the roundtable in fact we're going to uh love it but Brocky routine are you a fan of them I routines were always ingrained in me so when I played sports it was like do the same thing you know take take a breath here do this do that so yes routines are much the same and as speaking for your water bottle I, I don't know if you'd call this, oh, uh, for me, OCD or, or routine, but sometimes my workers, Catherine Batcher, uh, will switch the water bottle color. Uh, like So I have a, an orange water bottle and a yellow water bottle, and the lids mm-hmm. match. But if she switches them, it bugs me. And she does it mm-hmm. on purpose. It's just routine. It should look the same. And I feel like if I'm grabbing one with a different color on it, it's like, this is weirdly uncomfortable but she finds it amusing it's true and there's so much science behind uh, like the overall habit building idea right building habits stacking habits keeping routines in to help you uh, build good habits and get rid of the bad ones and I think that these are one of the cues that they talk about like the color the placement uh, you know how far you have to walk to get to something usually they're talking about like bad eating but hey maybe water bottles too you're getting on to yeah. something Brocky. You never know. You never know. All right, let's see what else is coming up on today's edition of Kelly and Company, aside from this fabulous conversation. Fern Lellum is getting a head start on preparing us for this year's International Day of Persons with Disabilities. And I say head start because it falls on December 3rd every year. Amongst the other conversations we have on this program, I love when the producers slide in a little sports. The Canadian National Blind Hockey Team was announced earlier last week. And we're going to learn more about the 2022-2023 team with Luca DeMontis, who is the uh, uh, Director of Hockey Operations for the Canadian Blind Hockey Organization. 
Looking forward to that one, as well as flipping through quirky stories from around the globe with Jeff Ryman. We call it What in the World, and we'll do that later on uh, after 3 p.m. during the second hour of Kelly and Company. Okay, guys, let's talk about some other stuff going on. Um, all day, people have been talk- chatting about Kobe Bryant, and uh, because Kobe Bryant and his daughter, Gianna, have been honored with a mural in downtown Los Angeles to um, mark Mamba Day. The piece takes up the entire side of a building close to the stadium where Bryant played 20 seasons with the Lakers. Artist Nicholas Smith says he got emotional while painting the mural. I had forgotten how much... How, much, how many of the emotions that I kind of like put away after, you know, the grieving process. 824 is called Mamba Day because Bryant, who was nicknamed the Black Mamba, wore both numbers in his career with the Lakers. Bryant and his daughter were killed in a helicopter crash in 2020. Blake Trolley, ABC News, Los Angeles. So the mural unveiling came on the same day that the U.S. federal jury as another piece of news, found Los Angeles County must pay Kobe Bryant's widow $60 million, uh, sorry, $16 million over photos of the NBA star's body at the site of the 2020 helicopter crash. Uh, that part of it is brutal. Um, we got into some of this discussion on Now with Dave Brown early this morning, but Rocky, you know, I'll let you comment wherever you want to hear, whether it's the um, settlement or uh, Mamba Day and the mural. And I think that, like the artist said, a lot of us fans of Kobe Bryant, for whatever you want to take him in your heart for, um, have held back a lot of the emotions. I cannot believe it's been two years, first of all. Um, and the day, like when we were all mourning his loss and his daughter's loss that day feels fresh just talking about it right now um it was in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic too when that was fresh and um I was sitting with my friend and when we heard about it we were just just shocked along with the rest of the world and I'm sure you were too Brocky yeah they I was at a um a Grinch um it was like a a pop-up thing where they did everything Grinch, Dr. Seuss, all those things in Mississauga. And -hmm. I was standing in line to to get a picture with one of the characters. And all of a sudden, I just started hearing Kobe Bryant died. Kobe Bryant died. And it would be repeated, repeated. And it's like, no, I'm not hearing that right. And then it just flooded over uh, socials. And you know what? Kobe Bryant will forever live on. And his daughter. Because he made such an impact and listening to that mural and you know, the level that everyone's been supporting that I just want to, I hope one day to go see that because he made such an imprint on the world. And I think the mural is sort of the tip of the iceberg as to what kind of impact Kobe made on the whole world, to be quite honest with you. Yeah. And it honestly just disgusts and leaves such a, bad taste in my mouth to hear about the other side of it the flip side of the photos um and just the 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 rights and the privacy that uh his wife is suing for and and honestly like you don't want to think about that stuff when you think all you want is for kobe and his family uh to be respected and for us to only you know grieve 
in in peace and in solidarity to his family so um yeah it 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 kind of sucks that that also is a, still on the tail end of this discussion about this beautiful mural uh, but i love the spot i love the intention behind it and like you said the reason for it to uh for kobe bryant's memory to live on forever uh because he's done a lot a lot more than just sports so appreciate that as well we also have jeff ryman behind the scenes today um teching for us so i wanted to acknowledge that before we take a break we are going to go into a break and come out with michael fair he's featuring moriarty the devil's game this is a recent podcast edition to the audible plus catalog and we're going to learn more about uh it and michael fair's reviews when we get back on kelly and company Check out the conversations here on Kelly and Company, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday. And you can even take part in these conversations by giving us a call, 1-866-509-4545. That's our our phone number where you can leave a voicemail. And if you'd like us to play your message on air, please give us permission to do that. Also, feedback at ami.ca, an easy way to email us with your comments And on social media, if you're hanging out there on Twitter, you can find us at AMI Audio. I'm the host of the show, Ramia Amuthan, here with Brock Richardson today. And we're going to talk a little bit more audio entertainment. We're squeezing in as much as possible throughout the summer on this front with Michael Fair. Hi, I'm Mike Fair. iPhones, iPods, and iPads are everywhere. And they're doing great things for the blind. We explore all that, plus audio entertainment, dramas, podcasts, internet radio, and games. We share it all on Kelly and Company. Michael, it's been a little bit of everything all summer with you on Thursdays. Uh, You know, audio dramas, comedies, horror, and some suspense. And this time around, earlier this summer... Audible added Moriarty, The Devil's Game, to its Audible Plus catalog. And so you're going to tell us about this star-studded podcast, which turns the world of Sherlock Holmes on its head. Intriguing already. What's the story about? So basically, this this uh, podcast, the idea is that Moriarty is innocent. Professor Moriarty is Sherlock Holmes' arch enemy. He is he's the master criminal that Sherlock Holmes ends up dueling in the in the regular cam uh, uh, regular Sherlock Holmes this says that Moriarty is actually innocent he's a brilliant young math professor and he had a a formula that could predict the future and refused an offer uh by the british to to work for the uh, the british monarchy and therefore like the things that happen it ends up that this this is sort of uh pushes his bride to be uh, is is killed and he is framed for that murder, and he knows he didn't kill this this unfortunate woman. And now the whole story is his journey to become the master criminal that he ultimately is, and it, it turns everything on its head. Sherlock Holmes is evil in this, just really ruthless and and just hard hearted. Everything, it, it, all the characters of 
are are sort of changed in different ways. It's it's brilliantly done, and it's it's a neat to take on the whole Sherlock Holmes uh, pastiche. Sounds very cool. Uh, what level of resources have been put into this particular project? Audible has spared no expense here. Uh, it, it's uh, they, they uh, partnered with uh, Treefort Media, and together they just threw everything at this. Dominic, Dominic Monahan and Billy Boyd are the lead star, stars in this. They are familiar to Lord of the Rings fans as as hobbits. Actually, uh, they were both hobbits in that. And uh, Dominic Monahan is the professor, and uh, Billy Boyd is Colonel Sebastian Moran, his partner. And uh, boy, they just went to town. So top billing in terms of actors. Mm -hmm. uh, the writer is uh, Charles Keineker. He writes other screenplays. He was responsible for uh, Kill Switch, the movie, and Edge of Winter. So uh, top level writing, sound, and every and music, uh, movie quality stuff. So they they threw the works at this. Yeah, and we'll get more into the details on the acting and stuff in a second. But it, I think that it's expected, right? Like we'd expect nothing less from a uh, audible and b taking on something like this, where you're supposed to flip the way you think of the whole Sherlock Holmes franchise. And we can't even get into how extensive that is and how much it's been done. How long is the story itself, and what's the pacing like? The story is divided up into 10 episodes. Each of them is around 30 minutes. Most of them are a little more. So you end up with roughly like approaching six hours, I would say, of content uh, in that range. So uh, it, basically uh, each episode is, is 30 plus minutes in a nutshell. And uh, it, it, the pacing changes. It, it has sections of flashbacks and kind of slows down as, as there's some soul searching that happens. And it speeds up their action sequences, like a prison escape and a bank robbery, uh, and a few other things. And uh, just a really excellent, uh, excellent job pacing this. And you mentioned it sort of off the top, specifically about uh, Sherlock Holmes just being uh, ruthless. Was your words? Um, as a longtime fan, what did you think of the characters? and how they were altered. Were you supportive of this? I really w was a dubious going in. I thought, oh, this could really devolve into a horrible budget comedy kind of thing, and I just thought, oh, no. But it, it surprised me. They, mm. they, the, the core of each character remained. You could sort of tell, oh, this is a, a neat switch of roles, and it was really honored. Like, I never felt that any cheating was done or any extremes kind of were, were just nonsensical it all made complete sense and it kind of reminds me of a neil gaiman story called a study in emerald where it's sort of an alternate universe an alternate reality where different things were true of different people it had that kind of feel it was, it was very well executed so lots of research or notes taken um, from Sherlock Holmes to make this feel very plausible how about the sound and music you touched on a little bit of this stuff already but Tell us more. Yeah, this this is movie quality. If you sat me down in the theater and you pumped this through the speakers and didn't tell me and maybe removed the little theme things that mark the episode <laughs> breaks, I would swear it was a six-hour movie. Like, this thing is top quality, movie-level, absorbing sound. It's really well done. You know, the prison environment, all the different environments, you felt like the characters were there. The voices sounded like they ought to in those locations. The movement sounded right. Like it just, the detail was impressive, really impressive. 
And do you have anything more on the acting for us that we haven't touched on? Yeah, the acting was really awesome. Uh, Dominic Monaghan, you could really feel his his journey from innocent professor to now becoming this this ultra criminal. Uh, Phil Lamar uh, really gave evil to Sherlock Holmes in a convincing way. You really, this guy was ruthless and just determined to, to no matter what depths he had to sink to or dastardly deeds, he was going to manipulate his even Watson. Uh, Adam Gottlieb did a really neat job as as a soul-searching Watson who was just forced into this by a ruthless Holmes and used his skills as a tracker and, uh, a, and basically a doctor who's forced to commit murder to help Holmes achieve his ends. It's it's just incredible how all of this was done. Uh, just superb, superb stuff here on the acting front. Was the ending handled well? I was surprised by that. I, I just clearly saw it could end up disastrously, but I, I was very happy with how that ended. They really pulled the ending off nicely. It didn't feel unresolved. It it felt like it ought to. Of course, it was going to happen. You almost had that sense of how inevitable it was once you heard it. But uh, we we had to hear it. Uh, Sarah and I both uh, listened to the story uh, in in a long section. We did nearly a five hour binge at one point because we just we had to hear how it ended before <laughs> we could sleep. Like it was that good. And so overall, then, how good of an entry was this for Audible? This is probably the best thing, certainly this year, that they've done, I would say, in, in terms of just sheer quality. And to, to, they're not charging you for it. You can, If you're an Audible member, if you're already subscribed to Audible and, and getting a credit or more per month, you can just go in and grab this at no cost and just hear it. And that is they're, they're, that Audible Plus perk is really becoming something. There's such a big collection now of shows and things, including this one. And this is top of the line. This, this will, th- those hours will fly by listening to this. It was, it was so well done. Now, Mike, I mean, you, you've mm-hmm. been talking very highly of this whole thing. And I, it's made me want to go and, and listen to it and see what this is all about. Was there anything in this where you were like, oh, I was kind of missing this or that? Or would you say like just complete per- performance, nothing missing at all? I. I couldn't detect anything missing or any any sort of little errors. I was I was kind of listening for that sort of thing, but they really covered their bases well. I I expected to find something to gripe at, honestly, but I really didn't. They really pulled off something pretty neat here, and uh, it, it just it's the the best they've ever done with Audible Original. I guess they're getting these partner organizations in, and uh, they're able to really pool with resources well. And, and really up their game, and uh, they've done it again here. It's it's really top top quality. I would have e- cheerfully paid a credit for this. Yeah, and which is why it's so amazing that they're putting all this stuff on Audible Plus, right? I mean, it's still just going to get more uh, Audible subscribers in, you know, on the on the 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 bigger picture uh, of Audible. And if they're, if people are more intrigued by Audible Plus catalog and you're not yet a member of Audible, then you're of course going to um, start leaning towards that option. But it's amazing because yeah, existing members don't have to pay anything extra and the quality doesn't change or, you know, the content doesn't simplify just because it's in the Audible Plus. Like I'm hearing a lot of people rave about this 
this uh, oh, yeah, section I mean, of Audible. It, it changes the, the whole balance of it because you know, yeah. on one hand, you're just getting one book a month. And for a lot of people, that's questionable. They're, oh, do I really want to pay that much for a real? month for one audiobook? But when you get this Audible Plus thrown in and you really explore it and take time to dig into what's included, it's massive. And there's tons there. And it's, it's so much more. There are whole books. There are whole series. Uh, there are podcasts, specially developed shows that are really high quality for the most part. Uh, and you, you know, don't, and the, it's not just books. Like that's what you're mentioning right now. It's not, it's no longer just, oh, if I don't do audiobooks, then why would I subscribe to Audible? There's a slew, like just their podcast archive alone is incredible. Oh yeah, absolutely massive. And and, mm-hmm. and just so worth listening to. And the app makes it so easy and accessible that it, it's just a no brainer. Like I would say for Blind people, unless you're really, really tight for for funds, Audible is almost a must at this point. Even if you never get one book from it, there's yeah. so much that you can just you know enjoy that uh, that it's it's kind of worth it. You know, there's so, there's is. audio dramas, there's shows, there's other things you can use those credits for, and then there's just this massive Audible Plus. That, exactly that now is, on is, top is, of all that, Mike. Going back to Moriarty for a bit, um, do you feel like the um, vibe the you know the genre if you will of this podcast feels like the classic way to go for Sherlock Holmes that you know mystery and whatever there's not really elements of comedy or other things to make it different no it was pretty it was pretty classic it, it, okay. it, took, it took itself seriously there were you know fun moments but this was a this was a tragedy unfolding this was a, a fellow you know, forced into the dark side of life, the, the, the ambitious, greedy side of Victorian society. So there were, it, it didn't sort of pull any punches there. You really felt the grimness of this journey of this man. And he, he, you know, as, as he grieved the loss of his fiancée, you kept seeing flashbacks uh, to her uh, as as he went through his, his journey and what he becomes. It's just, it, it it has a, a a very classic, very modern feel. Like it almost sounds mm. like the Sherlock series, uh, just in, in the sheer quality of sound. Uh, it, they've really enhanced that to the point where it's just like wow, like it's just amazing. And but it, it doesn't lose that old, the Victorian feel. That kind of these are events and they're almost slated to unfold this way kind of thing. There's that that classic sense of of plot progression as you go through this. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I'm really looking forward to it. Do we still have more audio entertainment coming our way next week? Well, we have a bit of a detour. We're going to go a bit into tech. Apple has thrown a bit of a curve at us. We do have a couple of summer blockbusters in the offing, though, that haven't appeared yet. And they they probably will soon. So we will be sort of doing a bit of tech, a bit of entertainment. We're going to vary it a bit more from here on out. I mean, that's the back-to-school vibe, right? Thank you so much, Mike. Looking forward to all the content. Absolutely. We'll keep it coming. Michael Fair joining us on Thursdays for audio entertainment throughout the summer. He's done a ton. So check out the podcasts for that information and all the reviews. Uh, But next week, we'll be going into a little bit of Apple Moriarty. You can find uh, Moriarty, the devil's game free um, for audible members as part of the audible plus catalog. And then you can add episodes to your library at no cost. We love it. After the break here on Kelly and Company, we're checking in with UK's Fern Lullum for some disability highlights. She's prepping us for this year's International Day of Persons with Disabilities being recognized on December 3rd. We'll be right back. 
having a fun time as always on the Thursday edition of Kelly and Company. And you know, Thursdays are, mm, they can be pretty serious. But you know, if I'm going to give you some hints about the round table, hint, uh, I'm trying to keep it light. Okay, Brock, this is for your benefit because in no way are you going to get the roundtable content here today until it's actual roundtable time. The curse will not set in today and I will run the the roundtable. I don't know. Sometimes I feel like Kelly puts me here on a random Thursday just to see if the roundtable will go through or not. But don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) It's happening. Notice that? Like he was here all week. He's even here tomorrow without me, but it's me who got to take over. But anyway, the roundtable is going to be fun. Okay, I think you guys will really enjoy the uh, subject matters. And I'm doing what I'm doing is speaking of routine, I'm trying to give you all the teasers like Kelly gives me when he's running the roundtable, and hopefully that will send the vibes out into the universe. His uh, his offline work is just conveniently placed on roundtable days. (laughs) Exactly. Mm. Mm. Thursdays just work better for everybody, huh? Okay. <laughs> let's uh let's get to our UK highlights. We do this every other week with our friend Fern Lullum. What's on your mind? I'm Fern Lullum from the UK, and whether serious, silly, or somewhere in between, I've got you covered. Let's face it, the most effective therapy is a chat with your bestie. Fern, Brock and I are very, very excited about today's conversation. It's like a super heads up and a total, you know couple months prep uh, for the International Day of Persons with Disabilities, and that's annually recognized on December 3rd, which means we have several months to get ourselves started and spread the news. We do indeed. And it's very unlike me to be so organized and on the ball. <laughs> so this is a rare occasion and mm. I'm bringing it back for the Thursdays. Don't be knocking Thursdays too much, by the way, guys. Thursday is my we day. We love so Thursdays. We that's love true. a Thursday. The first Absolutely. hour at least. And most of the second hour. And then it comes around table and then we're like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. So let me tell you, before we get to that amazing part of the show, which we're all looking forward to so much, um, I thought now would be a good time to talk about this, the, uh, the Day of Persons with Disabilities, because I think it's a day which will be well worth putting in your calendar. Um, As you mentioned there, Ramyat, December the 3rd, and maybe organizing an event to raise awareness of disability, because who doesn't want to do that? Absolutely nobody. Everybody wants to do that. So let's talk about this worthwhile occasion. Fill us in on the details. Yes, so it was launched by the United Nations in 1992, and it forms an important part of their um, their vision of leaving no one behind. That's a good vision, if you ask me. And I think the day gives an important opportunity to constructively raise awareness of the barriers that we still face when it comes to achieving equality, because they're still out there, aren't they? They are, indeed. Does each year have a different theme then, Fern? Yes, it does. So, for example, back in 2007, the theme was decent work for people with disabilities. This aimed to show the value of disabled people in the workplace and that we are very capable of holding responsible positions, or at least some of us are. (laughs) Some of us are. Not naming any names. Extra training, maybe? Yes. Okay. So what's the theme (laughs) for this year, Fern? 
Well, it's not all disabilities are visible, particularly to us, because none of the disabilities are visual if you can't see. Um, but this is all about raising awareness of conditions like autism and dyslexia and how best to support people who have those conditions. And it's always good to uh, talk about equality and messaging, isn't it? Definitely. It, it certainly is. And removing the barriers faced by disabled people helps to unleash their potential, as we know, and that benefits society as a whole. So getting that message across, I think, will always be really important. Yeah, most definitely. Uh, all aspects of disability, but particularly this part if we're focusing on it. How might people mark the International Day of Persons with Disabilities? Well, I think there are lots of ways to do it, but one way would be to hold a disability awareness day at work. Nice. Okay. So do tell us a little bit more about how that might work. Yeah, well, so an example might be a local disability charity going to workplaces to give talks about living with disability and what it's like. And depending on the type of service that the workplace provides, they might be able to comment on the accessibility of the service, so how accessible they are to the general population, mm. or even how accessible the room that they're being asked to talk in is to the... Because that would be ironic, wouldn't it, if they put them in a room that just isn't accessible? Yep. Yeah, no, I think that as people <laughs> prep for this day, uh, well intentions, all good and well, um, you might start to understand, oh, do we lack and do we need to start thinking about these other things in order to host an accessible event? Mm. Um, there's plenty else that they might talk about as well. Absolutely. I mean, they could talk about accessible recruitment and the benefits of employing disabled people because, you know, that's so important and it's clearly still not happening as much as it needs to. Yes. And of course, we're not just talking about uh, this kind of thing limited to workplaces, are we, friend? No, not at all. So local community organisations could organise face-to-face events or webinars led by disabled people, and that would raise awareness of disability and educate people about what they can do to improve inclusion and how to normalise disability. And do you have any thoughts on the kinds of things that could be covered at events like this? Well, I think some of the most useful things are actually really basic and simple. I found through doing things like this similar um, in the past that simply explaining that although we might have physical differences, we are emotionally very similar, that alone can be really powerful. You know, we, we as, as you will both know, we all have the same hopes and dreams and fears mm. as non-disabled people. And if you can hit on that, it's really relatable to everyone, whoever you are, disabled or not. Mm -hmm. Bern, it seems so obvious to explain things and that would help. But can you kind of expand on why you think explaining things like this helps? Well, I think it's because disabled people can sometimes be seen almost as alien. You know, I'm not disabled, therefore you are not like me at all. I can't see any similarities. And people do often, unfortunately, tend to see differences rather than similarities and weaknesses rather than strengths. So I think the special international day just gives us that opportunity to work with non-disabled people to improve that understanding and build that connection. 
Yeah, it puts us in a mindset as the the people with disabilities um, as well to think, hmm, how can I represent myself here? How can I take part in a mm. productive conversation on this day and not just to, uh, take this opportunity to say, yeah, the able-bodied world sucks and we're never getting our way. You know, th- we don't mm. want that to be the bottom no. message. No, no. Uh, yeah, like we're we're thinking of talking constructively together because that's important. I'd say it's absolutely vital and I couldn't agree more with what you just said, Ramya, there. In fact, my suggestion for next year's theme would be education over confrontation, which you won't be surprised if you've heard me before. That's all I bang on about ever. Mm-hmm. Yes, that <laughs> that's certainly a fern fundamental. What else can be included <laughs> in events such as these? Well, I think explaining how technology is helpful for disabled people to become independent and do things that they might not able, you know, be able to to, to do uh, might not even be possible to do in the past. That's really important. And I think a related point to that is encouraging others to ask what we can do and what we can't do rather than just assuming it. I think we've all been in that position. Yep. All the time. Exactly. (laughs) Especially with technology, because technology keeps getting bigger and better and uh, we want people to know that that benefits us humongously and it's pretty clear based on just this laundry list of things we've discussed thus far that there's no shortage of um, discussion points what about other ideas to mark the day well, I think it is really important that disability awareness starts at a really early age because I don't know about you, you two, but I think if children grow up with good awareness, um, then they have a far better chance of normalizing disability, you know, in adulthood. They're just used mm. to it. So disability related events at school seem like a really good idea because then you're learning young and then you grow up with it and it's just part of your life. And and we often talk about things like this uh, being involved in, in the school System And we hope that events like this can just become part of a regular feature at schools. Oh, 100%. I think if we are to normalise disability, we do have to normalise it by talking about it from a really early age. Yeah, uh, that's definitely important. And these are all really good ideas, but kind of... Um expanding a little more do you think that society as a whole shows enough interest in disability to make this day the international day of persons with disabilities worthwhile for us oh that's a really good question All I can say for sure is that I think there are plenty of reasons why people should be very interested in it. And one um, is that around 15% of the global population has some form of disability. And Mm -hmm. paired with that, most disabled people acquire their disability after birth. So it can literally happen to anyone at any time. You know, there's no saying this will never happen to me because you can never be 100% sure of that. And... Many people are just simply are not aware of that exact fact that disabilities mm-hmm. can affect them and be around them, and it's closer to them than they may think it is. Exactly. And apart from that, accessibility and inclusion has big benefits for everyone. For example, it enables us to spend our money on goods and services, which in turn benefits the economy. Yeah. Exactly. We want to, we say this all the time on our show and all over the network. We want to give our money to you. If the yeah. stuff is accessible, we really do want to be part of society and, you know, be part of the 
the transactions of society as well. Yeah, we got money. We do. We have so much money. Oh, wait. (laughs) No, we don't have that much money. (laughs) Some of us do. (laughs) Some of us. So apart from holding events, um, have any other ways of marking the event been used? Yes. Back in 2020, Scope, which is a major UK disability charity, used their website to showcase blogs written by disabled people about their lives. And naturally, the internet opens up so many possibilities for raising awareness. I think it would be great to see organisations not normally associated with disability using their platform to support this day as well. Yes, I agree 100%. What are your hopes for the International Day of for people with disabilities in 2022? Well, I'm talking about it now because I think the longer we have to prepare, the more successful the day will be. I guess my main hope is that lots of thought will go into encouraging um, and engaging non-disabled people in this day, like I've been talking about. And I think that the, that's the way of making real change because we all already know, you know, if you talk to other disabled people, we're all living this life. So yeah. we really need to reach out to the others and try and help them understand better. And any ideas on how we can get that started? Well, I'd like to see governments encouraging employers, schools and local communities um, and, you know, to hold events um, and to to bring leaders into those events to mark that day. Now, I'm not sure how likely that is to happen, if I'm, you know, being really honest. So I think disabled charities and our community generally needs to publicise this day as much as possible and offer support and events. And I hope it can bring lasting change because disability is not just for Disability Day, you know? Disability is for life, not just for Christmas most of the time. Right, (laughs) exactly. And honestly, it's true. There's so many um, people that this year, it will be the first time they've ever heard about this day. So we need to do our part in sharing that awareness and having people listen to some of these really important conversations and ideas. Thanks, Fern. For sure. If you've never heard of it before, you're welcome. Yeah, exactly. I appreciate your time. We'll talk to you uh, in two weeks, Thursday, best day ever. Have a great show, guys. Enjoy the roundtable. Thank you. Fern Lullum giving us her blessing for the roundtable and joining us for the UK Disability Highlight segment that's every other Thursday on Kelly and Company. After the break, we're checking in about blind hockey in Canada. The Canadian National Blind Hockey Team announced their 2022-2023 roster. and We're going to learn more about it with Luca DeMantis after the break. It's Kelly and Company on AMI-audio. And uh, if you want to check out all kinds of AMI-audio content on demand, then you can go to your favorite podcasting platform and search for your favorite show. That might be Kelly and Company, but it doesn't have to be. It could be anything. We have lots of great shows that are available on podcasts. And just check them out by searching in. And then please remember to uh, review Leave your awesome reviews down there. Share the podcast that you've listened to and subscribe to the show so that you can get all the newest and latest episodes and content straight into your podcast platform. I'm Ramia Amadan here with Brock Richardson and welcome to the Thursday edition of Galleen Company. 
Well, I mentioned it off the top of the show that as the sports guy on the network, I love when we get to chat sport. And today is no different as the Canadian National Blind Hockey Team was announced their 2022-2023 roster last week. We're going to hear more from Luca DeMontis, who is the Director of Hockey Operations for the Canadian Blind Hockey. Luca, how are you? Welcome to the program. Good. How's it going, everyone? Always Great. good. Always good on a Thursday. As mentioned, yeah, I could the... Uh, agree with you there. <laughs> I agree. When the weather's good, we're all happy. Uh, as mentioned, the uh, Canadian national team was announced last week. Can you tell us how that went, if you would? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I'd love to share exactly how the camp breakdown went and more or less how we were able to uh, select the 16 individuals who uh, were named to the national team that will represent their country at the upcoming tournament against Team USA. Um, first off, it was great just to get back on the ice, just to get the group back together um, on the ice as much as they could be. And I think we were on the ice for a total of three hours a day, which definitely helps in terms of choosing a team and having them play. As you know, the last two years have been difficult, so we really haven't been able to really utilize the ice time as we would love to. Um, so we were truly able to do that. And with a great partnership that we had at St. Mary's University, um, we were able to really maximize our ice time opportunities, which was great for the players. The players truly loved it. And that was one thing in planning a camp, we really kind of, take their suggestions, right? What do they want to do? Um, what do they want to benefit from? What do they feel that they could learn from, right? And uh, ice time is always at the top of the list. They always want to get on the ice more and more. So we were able to uh, offer over 12 hours of training ice for the Canadian national team throughout the camp, uh, which also featured a couple of cool experiences. We, uh, we had a showcase game in front of a cello crowd um, at St. Mary's University with uh, players from the NHL, AHL, CHL, and a couple of St. Mary Huskies players, both from the men's and women's team. That was a great, uh, a great night. Uh, it was on the Thursday night of camp, and I believe that was so important because it got the group that was just mixed together for this national team selection camp a lot closer. Um, not only were they playing against each other, but uh, we got to share a very cool experience with all being in the same change room, uh, a very professional change room that was uh, donated to us by of course, the Huskies for both men's and women's programs. So not only were we able to have uh, our national team selection camp there, but we were able to have enough females, um, which led to us hosting a session with the St. Mary's Huskies women's team and all the females that attended the camp. So that was super cool, which leads us into uh, one of the players who did make the camp this year, Amanda Proven, um, a pioneer now in blind hockey in Canada on the women's side. Um, and she's the first woman now to ever make the Canadian national blind hockey team. So huge kudos to Amanda Proven from uh, Sudbury, Ontario. Um, she definitely had a great camp. All the players made the team had an amazing camp. Uh, but it was a lot of fun just being together for those five days. And, you know, um, you get to learn about your teammates a lot. Right? especially when you spend that much time with them off the ice. You know how talented some of these players are, like J Jason Yuha on the ice, but when you get to spend the time off the ice as a group, um, you really get to get a lot, lot closer as a team. And, and one thing I truly believe is that um, the closer we can get as a unit and as a family, the more uh, we'll be able to go and be there for each other, both on the ice and off the ice. There's nothing better than team camaraderie. It's 100% uh, great. Uh, what goes into selecting the roster? If you could tell us a little bit more about that. Um, a lot of tough questions we get asked, and we ask each other these tough questions. You know, myself and uh, 
coach Joe McCallion, also known as Cowboy to the community. Um, but then we had a, a team full of um, kind of helpful volunteers from the St. Mary's coaches to uh, even coach Paul Karen's back home in Toronto, right? Uh, we were sending him video from practices. So it's a, it's a collaboration. It's not just a one person show. Um, there's a lot of people whose uh, insights we take to them, even sending video footage to coach Joey Ali, right? He was all the way in, in Vancouver. So the whole other side of the country, and he's still giving us kind of drills to do with the goalies while he's, thousands of miles away right so it, it's so important to just take everybody's um ideas and thoughts into play especially when selecting a team that's going to go on and represent a country um in the sport of blind hockey right so uh it was tough it was difficult it was tough but uh, I, I like to think we made the right decisions moving forward and uh i've got the utmost faith in this group to get the job done what kind of turnover was there from this year's team compared to years past rosters that's a great question. Uh, we had 11 returning players, um, 11 players who've been part of this team now from the 2018 team in Pittsburgh and 2019 in Ottawa. Um, so yeah, 11 returning players and we named 16. We had five new players, five first time players who will be wearing the national blind hockey team Jersey for the very first time. And uh, it was super like cool just to share that news with them um, behind doors in a closed meeting and, and see the emotion and to, myself like that emotion just speaks volume knowing that you, you just achieved a dream a goal something that you've set out in your life to achieve especially um despite facing um a barrier such as a disability that a lot of people would really shy away from but a lot of these athletes really rose to that challenge and being able to share that news with them was super great and it was cool to have those moments and just uh really soak in that and it was a it was a great experience definitely something i, I will never forget mm -hmm. absolutely and Speaking of the, you know, looking forward to what can, uh, what's the next tournament that the players can look forward to on the national team? Yeah, so the national team after camp, they all went back home, took a couple weeks to rest and recover uh, from the camp, and now they're back in their uh, training in their own cities. And we're training to take on Team USA in Fort Wayne, Indiana, October 20th to 23rd. Oh, that's coming up. Wow, very exciting! It, yeah, it, it's coming fast. So the group is, is. Uh, the group starting. To, yeah, they're starting their off-ice training, which is very important just to stay in shape. And um, of all the players, you know, they spread out throughout five different provinces. So a lot of their provincial and uh, local blind hockey teams will get back on the ice. So that's super great to have them back on the ice and getting uh, getting their legs ready to get going. And speaking of which, you know, the kind of bringing people together from all different places. You have the uh, summer training camp out in Nova Scotia. How did that go? Oh, that was amazing. You know, Halifax and Nova Scotia, they're just great partners, especially St. Mary's University and the St. Mary's Huskies. Um, we really got to feel like we were students again, but also we were in just a professional atmosphere with the, the support from, you know, Michael Fines, the equipment manager over there at St. Mary's, the, the whole staff from the Huskies all the way top down, an incredible professional approach. And, you know, we couldn't be happier to possibly end up back there again next year, you know, the opportunities there. And um, it was something that I think the players really enjoyed. Uh, they got to go out, have some free time, some walks along the boardwalk, a lot of seafood talk. 
was going on at dinner. So, you know, uh, you can't go wrong with a lobster roll when you're in Halifax. <laughs> Definitely not. And we know how important it is, uh, you know, picking different places around Canada and building different communities to be involved with blind hockey and like honestly just bringing the awareness of the sport out in um, all these locations. So it's it's not a small deal. Definitely not. And that growth, I want to expand the conversation into the women's side of the sport. Um, it's picking up steam and we're very excited about that. What do you think is uh, happening? Like, how does it feel and how can we con- make it grow continuously? I think it happens from within, you know, and, and a, lot, a big testament of that is to Laura Mark, right? Like our girls are women's mind hockey coordinator. Her passion is, is, is what sets the tone, right? And her dedication um, allows the following players to follow her right and, and i think it's a huge testament because you know these girls have been uh, very influential in helping us grow the sport and, and they will continue to be right it was super cool to even see them have their own session at summer camp and to see what started off maybe five six years ago with only uh one or two females coming to camps and, and programs and events to now um a whole a whole group of them you know and i always have to take the time and just talk to them and ask them how's their experience going at camp and um how on our organization, can we make it a better experience, right? And, and I like to think um, we really kind of value their opinion because, you know, a couple of years ago, um, it went from, we'll be honest, where they were kind of like, we were trying to find a change room, a dedicated change room for them. And now, you know, the last few events, we've had not only a dedicated change room, but it's almost been like a dedicated, like, room for them to kind of embrace in a safe positive space where they can kind of interact and have their own conversations because it's very difficult especially in co-ed sports when the majority of the group is getting dressed in one part of the room and then after um as a team mate of that team when you get brought in just before the coaches hurrah speech it's kind of tough to build that team camaraderie right so i think on the woman's side it's truly important that they have their own space because we're able to see that right like we're able to see the girls and women hanging out in the change room and just being there for each other. If it's conversation, if it's a question, if it's what they're maybe going through on with right now in life. Um, but it's so important, right? And, and I think the women's game will continue to grow a uh, huge also a testament to Natalie Spooner, our ambassador. You know what I mean? Like her coming out to the girls and women's summit back in Toronto in March was, was massive, not only for the sport, but um, just massive for these girls to know that they do have that role model that they can look up to. Yeah, honestly, as you speak, I can really tell that the acknowledgement is so there. Um, all these, you know, building uh, momentum and the capacity to keep growing and what things count to make the the growth possible. And it starts at the change rooms. It starts in the, the team spirit. It starts in knowing that this is uh, not just possible, but loved, like the opportunity for girls and women in um, blind hockey. Luca, we got to let you go. But before we do, can you tell us where we can go for more information and to support blind hockey in Canada? Definitely. You could always go to our website and go to our Facebook page. Twitter, Instagram, we're across all social media platforms just trying to grow the game, create more awareness to the sport. And, you know, uh, thank you guys for always having us and believing in us and uh, being there with us along this ride. Always a pleasure for us, for sure. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. We greatly appreciate it, and best of luck in the future events. Thank you. That was Luca DeMontis, Director of Hockey Operations for the Canadian Blind Hockey talking about the national team and the growth of the game.
a whole nother hour of Kelly and Company coming up from 3 to 4 p.m. We are flipping through quirky stories from around the globe with Jeff Ryman on What in the World. We also have our weekly roundtable conversation. Grant Hardy is our guest today, our reporter in Edmonton. Oh, sorry, in Vancouver. (laughs) And up next, we have The Buzz with Bill Shackleton. gets us very excited to talk accessible adaptive sports um and really just the aspect of growth and that part is very exciting for you know all different reasons a that the sport itself is getting so much traction b uh that we're getting more people of all ages involved and interested and aware that the sport is here and and that these people are passionate about getting you into the sport and then you know talking about the the equality between men and women's sports and co-ed uh and just that support as well is very overwhelmingly emotional for so many of us as we continue to you know grow the sport itself and keep developing it but think you know, in a couple of years, we're having more women and girls play blind hockey as much as there are men in the scene. Very exciting. I'm shout right. out mm-hmm. Amanda. Shout out Amanda Progan for breaking, being, you know, groundbreaking and making yeah. the national team and being the first woman. She will forever have that cemented in her name, being the first woman that made the team. And obviously there will be more women in the future, but she will always be the first that broke ground Mm -hmm. so congratulations to amanda and uh, i'd love to have her on the neutral zone full full plug there to be honest uh honestly yeah it's just an amazing story amazing story and the the you know the person to get other women and girls talking about their own feelings or opportunities about being in the sport right that's what it that's the kind of uh like impact you carry as the first one to do it which is fantastic yeah so anyways this is just a riff off of the last conversation with luca demantis from uh canadian blind hockey and i'm ramia amuddin here with brock richardson we're hosting the show today and we're getting into the buzz with bill to kick off the second hour and this is where billy brings in some articles we chat about it and get into more discussions billy how's it going going good how are you guys we're well, well. Thank you so much. Looking forward to what you have for us. Well, doing this first one, which is a carryover from yesterday, head of Hungarian Weather Service fired after wrong forecast. There's a lot to this article that is. Well, there's a lot of ramifications. First of all, what ha- what the what happened is the Feast of Saint Stephen's, which. Um, commemorates Hungarian, the founding of the country, was supposed to go last weekend. There was a firework display. Now, basically what happened was the uh, the weather office registered a storm. So the officials canceled the, the display, which upset a lot of people. So essentially, the government fired the weather forecasters for making a wrong prediction. But here's a situation Mm -hmm. which is interesting. 
Um, the schedule, the festival had already been rescheduled for the for a week later, and this is why there are. I mean, obviously, the the government, I think, and other people are thinking they had an ulterior motive motive to get rid of these people. Um, because why fire them if the schedule was going to be rescheduled and if it was going to be rescheduled anyway, right? So it doesn't make a lot of sense that you'd fire them after rescheduling the, um, you know, the festival or the, the fireworks display. That's one interesting it, thing. If that's the level, Bill, where we're fired, like I giggled in part of what you said because I know. I'm I'm thinking – if that's the level to which we're going and we're going to say, well, you got the weather forecast wrong, so you're fired. Well, I can think of about a dozen or two dozen meteorologists that have been wrong and, and you know, they still have their jobs. There's, there comes that saying where it's like the only profession you can lie in is a, is a meteorologist. That's right. Met, whether man or woman. And it's just, it's crazy to me. I just, wow. It is. Now, here's the other ramification, which is extremely interesting. And I followed up a few articles um, on the Internet. And the ramification is that if you are, let's say, a scientist and you develop something, you discover something and your drug goes bust, could you be fired? I mean, this is this the ramification to this are pretty serious. I mean, if this catches hold um you may end up seeing whether people get fired or you may see other people get fired because of wrong predictions so i mean you're not ta- just talking about a simple fireworks display perhaps we're talking about something a lot more serious and is like you say is this direction we're going yeah, I mean, I don't know. A part of me thinks, sure, as technology gets better and as we need to be more cognizant of getting the right and more accurate information, maybe just calling out something and not necessarily, I don't even know if double checking yourself is really the word here, but you know what I mean? Making sure that that is the correct information, it could lead to some challenges. Yeah. Yeah. If it hasn't already, and I mean, get and let go. Yeah. And I guys, just... like I, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking 680 news has a weather contest where if the meteorologists are more than <laughs> X number of de- degrees off, they give prize money away to people. So, I mean, like society is encouraging them to be wrong because if yeah. they're not, if, if they get it wrong, then, X amount of money goes into the pot. And I mean, I've heard the money can grow and it's, it's like five, six, seven thousand $7,000. And one day they're going to get it wrong within that window and they still have their job, but somebody's got a pocket full of money in the process. Like, it, yeah, I know. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. yeah, it's, it's really, but I, you know, I still think the ramifications could be, we never, you never know how that, where this might go. That's all. Yeah. I mean, to me, though, it's kind of interesting that, like, it went to this extreme um, yeah. of an issue. But, you know, then that, again, all the people who put in the work for the day is probably pissed, but whatever. Yeah. Let's Sucks go to the second to one. It. Yeah, go yeah. ahead. Um, military families, um, basically, um, housing benefits lag as rent 
explodes. This is a sad story out of the United States. Apparently what's happening, well, from the Associated Press, um, what's happening here is you're, you're, you're working in the military and your situation is that you get posted somewhere else, say. Well, the problem with a lot of these people that have been, repo is, that have been reposted is they have to find housing from where you live. So maybe you move to another city or you move to another town or whatever. So basically there's no room on the military base. So now you have to find housing. And the, the Department of Defense, according to this article, is not keeping up with, with inflation. So a lot of these people that are have been reposted, um, some of them have said that they need two or three thousand dollars for like three or two or three months rent before they can even get a place. So there's a shortage of housing. So they end up living in parks. Some of them are living in trailers. Some of them are living in hotels. Oof. So because they can't afford to, they can't find a house. And if they do, they can't afford it. And I mean, there are organizations in the states that help these people. But apparently, it's just not enough. So what is happening? Like, I mean, why is it that, uh, I guess, the military, in essence, is not helping out? They just can't afford it anymore? Like, there's too many people to house? Yeah, the article didn't say why. I guess it's just that... Well, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Yeah, they've got to spend more money. I mean, that's what that's what the, the basically what's happening is the Department is... of Defense has to spend. Yeah, they got to spend more money to help these people. Well, they need to understand, you know, whoever yeah. is in charge of this housing and is just not able to keep up anymore. Need to understand that this is like, I mean, obviously it's been kind of um, put forward as a negotiable aspect of being um, a service member of the military. Because yeah. if you think about it, if it was a non-negotiable, this would not be acceptable. But yeah. it's kind of looking like, oh, well, sorry, there's a huge waiting list of people. You're just going to have to get on the waiting list and, and make do. Um, but that's such a trickle effect, right, Billy? Because they're not getting paid as yeah. much as the private sector. And, you know, in quotes in this article, um, people who are affected by this are saying that we at general society think that they're just living their life. Yeah. Living the life, the... living the dream. And that is not the case at all. As oh, you no, said, family not. members are yeah. all over the place. They're not just stressed, but they literally are living in homes. They can't even afford because yeah. the salary yeah. doesn't meet the demands of no, housing. That... And then the housing is not being provided. And here's, here's and another are. issue. Here's another mm -hmm. issue. Retention. I mean, if I'm in the military, why am I going to stay in the military if if I don't get housing support? Why should I? Why should I stay right. in a job? Yeah, you know what I mean. What are reasons for being doing? But it kind of yeah. feels like this information is on the DL, so you wouldn't even be aware of it if you know as an option or a, or a problem going into the military potentially. Yeah, which is even more concerning. Yeah, that's, and, um, yeah, I know. And people in the military are needed. And so just to sit that's there and say, thing. oh, well, oh, well, so sorry. You know, better luck next time. It's like, well, the more people you push away, the less you're going to have. And then they're not going to 
want to protect people because no what's kidding. in it for them? Yeah. Yeah. I it's mean, um, wow. It's a sad situation. And, um, um, you know, when you're in the military and it's like, it's you, you're a lot of, a lot of times you're behind the eight ball anyway, because, you know, if you have to leave the skills, you can only have, you only have the skill to shoot a gun, which isn't going to get you very far. Uh, you know what I mean? Like you're limited as to what, you know, what you can do. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. So. Yeah, this is, um, this is actually very sad and very, very unknown information. So I'm glad that it's coming to light because I hope that that means that it's going to go somewhere productive uh, with this conversation. Let's Thanks, so. Billy. Mm-hmm. Thanks a lot. We'll talk tomorrow. That's right. On the Friday segment. No pressure. Yeah. There. Oh, yeah. That's right. <laughs> All right. Take care, Billy. Bill take Shackleton care. joins us Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays to kick off the second hour with The Buzz with Bill. And every couple Thursdays, that's followed up with What in the World with Jeff Ryman. This is where we flip through some eh, intriguing, I don't know if it's interesting, but intriguing stories after the break. that last article that Bill Shackleton brought on the buzz really left a bad taste in my mouth and as Brocky you were pointing out during the break I wonder how people feel about serving the country when this is the kind of uh, treatment you find yourself falling into afterwards not yeah, we good can't, we can't even begin to think the stuff that militaries go through all around the world and it's so disappointing just to hear Oh, thanks for protecting our country, but uh, we're sorry we can't help you. Oh, and I'm sorry for all the PTSD you might you might sustain because of what we put you through, but we can't help you. And best of luck. It just it, mm-hmm. it bugs me, and it's so wrong. It's so wrong. It's leaving people stranded. That's honestly what's happening. But anyways, I'm sure we'll get into some lighter conversation. No pressure, Jeffy. Uh, in a second, right, Brock? Yes, we will. It's one of those. Other segments where we leave scratching our head for some weird reason. Sometimes it's time for What in the World with Jeff Ryman. The defendant's guilty verdict in a firearms case can't be automatically reversed just because the judge dozed off. The cries were that of a 40-year-old parrot named Rambo. Let me out. Some of it weird, some of it just crazy. This is What in the World on Kelly and Company. Mind-boggling. That is still my favorite uh, doorbell. I, I just love the way it's all put together. Just just love it. And I love this segment, Jeff, because you just never know what we might talk about or what we might be left wondering why this even occurred. So what do you have for us today? Yeah, well, first off, uh, I appreciate that you like that doorbell. I can't take credit. I didn't make it. Matt Agnew did, although it is... My doorbell, so I appreciate that. I'm surprised. I'm surprised you chose that over your own doorbell. I like your doorbell. 
gets me hyped up to talk sports. So yeah, but that's just <laughs> modest. Like if I was to pick my own doorbell, that's just that's just not not cool. It's like if I uh, I'm filling in for for Ramia next week. It's like if I picked sports as my favorite segment. It's just it's the easy it's the easy one to pick, and you know I just wouldn't do that. No, I like your well, your doorbell. Black guy has a big ego. No, <laughs> You're <kidding>. right. <laughs> Um, the first, the first article, um, I've chosen, I was actually really close to getting to it yesterday on health, but we just started talking way too much about salt. <laughs> uh, so it's one of those articles that got pushed to the side, although it is kind of good for what in the world, because I did see it all over the news yesterday. Uh, and it has to do with drugs. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw the article or news coverage of mushrooms, the psychedelic, and how there could be positives coming out of this. Because normally, you know, people who take drugs is usually considered a negative. Although in this instance, uh, it could be a positive for um, for the for this person. So uh, the compound in mushrooms actually helped heavy drinkers cut back or quit entirely in the most rigorous test of psilocybin for alcoholism. The Did study, I say that word? I think so. Okay. Uh, I, I did do a Google Translate. That's it. Psilocybin. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. You see, you I, I checked beforehand and uh, I completely mashed that up. So oh, good. We're here for each other. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for the correction. Um, but uh, the study that was published yesterday, uh, research, this is more research is needed for sure um, to see if the effects actually last. But the study involved just 93 patients who took this drug or a dummy medicine and they received two such sessions one month, one month apart. All patients also received 12 sessions of talk therapy and were followed for eight months. The patients taking, uh, Remy, can I get your psilocybin? Psilocybin. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Reduced their heavy drinking compared to the other group, and almost half stopped drinking entirely compared to 24% of the control group. So this is really interesting to read. Again, this is sort of a, a mix between health and maybe a what in the world, because Usually when we talk about stuff like this, um, it's, well, this is the first time we've ever talked about stuff like this um, in terms of taking uh, psychedelics to potentially help people with alcoholism. So this is really cool. I, mean, I know it's still just a very small study, but uh, I'm for it if it works. Uh, and obviously I think there's going to be more research that is needed to understand the potential side effects of taking this drug as well um or at least this compound in mushrooms so yeah i mean i i'm kind of for it. i i like hearing about this new research and like i said just that last sentence that i read and i'll read it again um almost half stopped drinking entirely and that is compared to 24 percent of that of the control group. So obviously there was more into this. Um, there was talk therapy. There were 12 sessions of that, but there were some uh, psychedelics used in this study, which I think is a little bit of out of the box thinking, but clearly there could be some good out of all this. I just, I just hope, and this is just me and where my brain is going with this. 
I just hope that if this works and somebody says, you know, uh, how did, how did, how did you become clean? And someone says, well, I used a compound, including psychedelics. The society doesn't just go, oh yeah, okay. I've heard that before. Like I, I really hope that if it does work and there's proven research that society buys into it and doesn't just kind of give people the old spocky and eyebrow and like, mm, okay, I don't know if this is going to work. If it works, I'm all for it. I just hope yeah. society takes the, the right pro- approach and all. Yeah. And I guess that's, uh, you know, one of the angles to it is that this drug isn't legal in most parts of the world. I believe in Oregon, it actually has been decriminalized. So there, um, you know, maybe more socially acceptable, I guess, um, if you live there. And also in the article, it was a bigger article that I ended up reading yesterday off the Canadian press, but it was saying like the people who were drinking, like it wasn't like one or two drinks a day. Like they were saying six to seven, like they were getting uh, inebriated like every day. And some of them just stopped completely, which is very unusual. Um, so there, I think there's definitely more research needed into this. And I, I think one of my main concerns, and I know, Brock, you pointed the social part of it, but the the other part of this is, which is like your own health. Like if you're going to be taking these drugs, are there long-term effects? Um, or could there be side effects? Um, stuff like that. I, I think that's fairly common for any new drug that is being put to test or on the market. So um, I'm, I'm curious to see where this goes. I mean, it was just a very interesting article and something that you typically don't see uh, very often. And I know there are a couple of drugs, I believe I read in the article yesterday. There were three yeah. other drugs that you could potentially use to help alcoholism. Um, but there hasn't been one that has been approved in the last 20 years. So this new one could uh, very well be uh, another gateway to people's recovery from alcoholism. Do you guys, have you guys heard of people having these kind of experiences? Okay, we know what hallucinogens are, right? Like we know the the experimentation side of all these things, but have you guys heard of any of the practices, we'll call them, um, that some people take and some communities as well, like indigenous communities around the yeah. world, not just in Canada, um, have with the, with hallucinogens and yep. um, the, the places they go and the, the, the part these things play in healing, I find to be very, very interesting. I read yeah. Will Smith's uh, autobiography and he talked about like during one of his darkest times in life, um, going over to somewhere in Central America. Sorry, I, I can't quote it. Um, and, and trying out a hallucinogen and going through this like profound change yeah. emotionally um, after that all night experience and very you know it's not for everybody yep but there are people who go through this and entire communities that support and promote these uh in a very controlled quote safe atmosphere but do it so this kind of reminds me of that but like looking at it more in a scientific medical way right for sure and i think yeah. there's actually been a recent um celebrity if you will aaron Rodgers, who's one of the star quarterbacks in the nfl he went down to south america not too long ago probably at some point in this offseason in the summer mm. i believe it was peru but don't quote me on that but yeah, I believe it, it might be and he okay. did one of the i forget what the drug was called but it was a native sort of halluc- hallucinogenic that like 
he said that he went down there and wanted to experience it mm-hmm. and like some people's it's testimonies a it's a whole like yeah it's a it, whole thing it's it, not it, just it's like a whole day slash night yeah. slash you it know, could be experience weeks. of customs. It, it could be yeah. weeks. It yeah. could be months, depending on how long you want to go. And there are testimonies from people out there that say it it, it legitimately is life-changing. So obviously I don't have any data or personal experience to back that up. But that's what people say. That That is that is what people say. So really interesting observation, Rama. Uh, I, I, I'm... From I didn't know Will Smith did that, but I, I did know that he Aaron did also, Rodgers yeah, did several that, times. So. Yeah. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Next article here, guys. Uh, Want to go over to the UK? I don't know if you guys follow the monarchy at all or uh, pay attention to the royals any bit. Uh, I actually watched bit. The Crown. Barely. I'm still waiting for that new season <laughs> to come out. I, I feel like I probably don't strike a lot of people as being a, a Crown person, but... I like it for the historic value. I think it's fairly accurate, kind of cool to get the background on the royalty yeah. and the monarch. But um, the queen, uh, this has to do with the queen and what she eats on a daily basis and what she likes. I don't know if you guys are familiar with what she eats on a daily basis, but it is kind of interesting. Uh, so Queen Elizabeth uh, has eaten jam sandwiches every day since she was a toddler, according to her former private chef, Darren McGrady. That's what he claimed on his YouTube channel. Uh, he also said that um, she favors a strawberry preserve made from fruits picked in her uh, one of her castles in Scotland. So she has her homemade jam, homemade strawberry jam that she uses for her jam sandwiches. Um, and this former chef also claims that the 96-year-old monarch is also partial to fresh strawberries, which she will eat three or four days a week when they are in season. But the chef says, woes beside, um, or, or betides anyone who tries to give her out-of-season berries. Uh, no bueno, no go, if it's not in season for the queen. <laughs> so it. I like strawberries too. I eat them basically whenever. Uh, here in Ontario, I like when they're in season, those fresh Ontario strawberries are so good. Uh, but jam sandwiches is something that the queen enjoys on a daily basis. I I, I like jam sandwiches, but I mean, got to throw some peanut butter in there. Come on. Yeah. Hey, whatever know. works, whatever works. If, if she wants to eat jam sandwiches for the, the rest of her time, I'm cool with that because she needs to stay around for as long as possible. Is there, yeah, but it is fascinating how she eats uh, the same thing. That's I what I was going to say. Do people more. actually get into this? Like, how much of this is just BS, if you ask? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it, do people really get into something that hard and promote it? Like, without this, uh, I wouldn't be me. Really? <laughs> uh, sure. I, I mean, I feel like everybody, especially when it comes to food, Okay, Everybody but do you have the one presence. thing? No. Like the one thing. I see this all over TikTok too, by the way. Like the one thing that you can't stop eating and you won't replace for anything else ever again, blah, blah, blah. You know, is there a thing? I don't do you know. guys have this? Water? Like, do we need water? That doesn't I, count. It, that, Next. <laughs> yeah. Pretty cliche <laughs> <Yeah>. answer. <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't know. Chocolate? I, I don't eat chocolate on a daily basis, although but like I, a particular I would like to. type. It's no, got to be specific, like this jam. Nothing. <laughs> I don't I, I can... I can answer the, uh, that to my doctor's dismay. 
For me, it's Pepsi. Like, oh my I gosh. love my Pepsi. Yeah, I. But it's not every day because my doctor said, "Whoa, dude! Like, you, you need not to do this." Stop. But yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, Jeffy. Thanks, man. See you guys. Jeff Ryman on what in the world, and that's uh, every other Thursday, kinda, on Kelly and Company. After the break, we have roundtable. We're gonna bring on Grant Hardy for those conversations. We'll be right back. Isn't it convenient that we have a round table? Well, it's actually it oval. Just say yeah, it. The blind guy feels it now. Goes, <laughs> well, I don't know. Well, so yeah, I guess it is oval. Kind of oval. Check one, two. Ramia, are you there? Oh yeah, thank God you checked. Yes, I am here, Rocky. <laughs> yeah, good. <laughs> There's a little bit of a psych to get things going as we get so excited about the round table. And, um, you know, this is a weekly conversation. We kind of leave things uh, off the table before we bring the conversation itself in. And the person who picks the subjects gets to keep it all to themselves. And sometimes that's me. Usually it's Kelly McDonald. And today we have the pleasure of Grant Hardy joining us on the round table here. Vancouver reporter for AMI. Grant. I hope we have you. You do indeed. Woo-hoo! You guys, you sound like you're having too much fun. I'm we happy are. to join you, amp up the fun, maybe even a little bit more. Oh, yeah. I'm totally excited that you're uh, <laughs> joining us. Thank you so much. And Jeffy, behind the scenes, we are ready to go. So let's start with this first conversation piece. Researchers, and I'm bringing disability in uh, from the get-go, so researchers at the University of Michigan are studying how well people with autism spectrum disorder can detect road hazards. And during phase one of the study, researchers found that um, students with ASD detected fewer hazards than controlled participants during simulated drives, but researcher Lise Hedges says many of the students improved with further training. We were encouraged to find that the intervention worked for the kids in the ASD um, group. So those folks that underwent training improved in two-thirds of the hazards in the simulated drive. Okay, so the project is being funded by the Ford Ford Motor Company, by the way. And um, I wanted to start with just the like as we were as I was scrolling through and um, found this article, the first thing I felt was offense. You know, I was like, "Excuse me, what what is what's happening? What is this study?" And this is obviously before any context of the study at all. And I was just thinking, uh, "Where is this going? What am I going to learn at the end of hearing this clip or reading this piece?" Um, and then when it got to the last line and saying, "Okay, but they are improving with more training." Um, I was glad to hear that expansion. So, Grant, your initial reaction to this study, first of all, um, that it's taking place, that this is what they've discovered, and they want to acknowledge that with further training, students with ASD are detecting more road hazards. Yeah, I mean, this is a really, really tough one for good safety, obviously, um, mm-hmm. because I I do think oftentimes... You know, as we know, uh, if you meet one person with autism,
autism, you've only met one person with autism. I think people who are neurotypical uh, tend to be very good at sort of overgeneralizing that, you know, people with ASD are X and Y or, or do X and Y. And if you actually talk to the community of people or talk to someone who's maybe a little better qualified, you might get a bit of a dressing down. Um, ultimately, I do think road safety and road hazards are very complicated and it is important to research it and come up with policies and solutions that are based on appropriate research. I'm not entirely sure how I feel about how this has been framed mm -hmm. and how this research has been conducted, uh, but I, I, I'd certainly be interested in, in learning more. Ultimately, I'd be very curious what sort of knowledge these individuals think they have about ASD, whether they've involved, you know, experts from the community and, and to what extent. It just seems a little bit basic and simplistic. What, what are your thoughts? I 100% agree. And which is why, you know, I hope that the, the biases that you're uh, pointing out that could have been involved in this study being conducted in the first place, I am hoping that they didn't exist. And this is purely for, you know, science for understanding um, neuro uh, atypical persons, and for trying to get a better picture like of the spectrum of ASD. But then again, you're talking driving and you're talking road hazards, which all of this, like you said, is a complex thing to begin with. And even for, you know, autonomous vehicles, right? We're talking not even the brain, the human brain, but just thinking uh, in the sense of when we're talking autonomous cars um, and semi-autonomous cars and teaching them through AI and machine learning to detect uh, road hazards and uh, be able to handle all kinds of situations on the streets, um, how much that takes. And the the concept there is people are not giving up, companies are not giving up, uh, initiatives are furthering uh, to make sure that the autonomous vehicles are coming into play. So now when we bring back people of neurodiversity and just like, you know, are we making sure that we're continuing to uh, have driving be an option for more people uh, of all kinds? And that's, that's just totally. a question that I have personally. Sorry, you were going to respond. Totally. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think also, um, you know, it's really important to remember that humans are highly distractible when we're yeah. talking. Everybody is very distractible. If you did a study about people with little kids in the car, I bet uh -huh. you would find that those people miss out on road hazards or people who have had a crummy day at work or people who left a little bit late without, you know, having time to pick up their, you know, their, their Starbucks, you can literally be practically an impaired driver. Um, so researching this a hundred percent important. Um, but like you said, it's important that we, we don't, we're not excluding people just because we've decided that they have a disability and we're going to mm -hmm. scrutinize them more than we would do other people.
For sure. Yeah. The intention behind this research really does count for a lot of um, what we discover anyway. And honestly, guys, you know, driving is such a touchy subject. It's something that's very delicate um, for a lot of people in the disability communities because we, you know, some people lose their their driver's licenses. Some people have been told forever that they can't drive. You know, in your your own situations, what what about driving makes it, uh, you, you know, hard, a difficult conversation for you. And Brock, you have an accessible vehicle that it's not driven by you, but it is an accessible uh, vehicle. No, it is not. <laughs> yeah, full disclosure, you don't drive it, but it's there um, <laughs> and you can utilize it. But I'm wondering, like, does this feel, you know, like it can be an awkward conversation or does it feel difficult for you to, uh, in general, driving? This one, uh, this topic, um felt to me and i hope i'm wrong but it felt to me like you it was another one of those situations where it was like people with asd you know didn't detect as many hazards on the road but look at this improvement as we pat them on the back for improving i i, I that's the first reaction i had i get the same reaction when i was in a couple of weeks ago almost a month ago now i was in a little bit of a uh a fender bender where someone rear-ended us and the cop was like beyond shocked when uh, my attendant opened up the back door and said this is his vehicle you know you need to discuss with him and, and the cop was like oh it's in your name it's your insurance it's you and it's like are we still here where we mm. have to where where we have to have these conversations so yes although i'm subjecting others driving my vehicle and it's only two or three people at most that drive my vehicle but it just it surprises me how how still society gets shocked as to oh you own your own vehicle but you don't drive how does that work like uh, there were so many insurance companies where i would apply for insurance and they'd say oh you don't drive we're not going to insure you and i found one and they're like yeah we can insure you we just Mm -hmm. have to put the others on board here and i deserve to own a vehicle much does the next individual and i just this 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 article itself i just kind of felt to myself we're doing another one of those pat on the backs and i hope i'm wrong but that's yeah the initial reaction i had yeah good job you can be in a car now good job you can own a car now and uh we'll see about you driving but we can't guarantee that that'll be a thing um, definitely a lot of responses and reactions to it. Thanks for sharing uh, the both of you, uh, how you felt. I want to move to something else that's going on. The life of former heavyweight boxing champion Mike Tyson gets a limited series treatment starting today. They call me a savage. Making Mike wasn't easy for star Trevante Rhodes, who plays Mike Tyson. We had a really, a really tumultuous shoot, man. So it was just, and you know, you get hurt. You know, they don't care. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? When you say tumultuous and you get hurt, like physically you got hurt? Hey, man. Can't go too deep into that. What he did go deep into was the voice and physicality of the former heavyweight champ, though Tyson was not involved in the project and has said he's not happy about it. Now I'm really going to have some fun. The first two episodes of Mike hit Hulu today. Jason Nathans and ABC News, Hollywood. Oh, my gosh, the pressure. So... We know that it's not easy portraying any kind of all-star celebrity, actor, singer, athlete. Like, the list goes on for people you (laughs) probably 
probably are so nervous to have to portray um, on camera. And I think it's just, it, it's huge and it's nerve wracking no matter who it is, no matter how great of an actor, actress, or cast member you are, um, the director, producer, whatever it is, take the whole team. Uh, when you got to, you know, support something like this, it's exciting, but it's also very nerve wracking. Is there something, Brocky, that you look for specifically and I mean look visually but it can just be anything in your experience of um watching something like this right somebody portraying Mike Tyson or anything else in your past experiences of um seeing people portray somebody else is there something that you look for to to nitpick or to say man they did that really really well you really have to in um you know delve into the the person you're trying to portray because if you don't fully immerse yourself in the individual you're trying to play it comes off as almost like fake and if you don't and you need to do all of the little idiosyncrasies of each person if you're gonna do it you got to do it right because otherwise it does a disservice to the person you're trying to portray and in disservice to yourself. And and that's why, and I want to preface this by saying, I would never, ever, ever want to play uh, Mike <laughs> Tyson because I couldn't do the things that, I, that I'm saying to do. But you have to make it believable. And I find sometimes when someone tries to play another person that's not them, you kind of go, okay, that didn't go over well, or that did go over well. It did sound like that that actor... Uh, pretty well delve into Mike Tyson and had some of the same vocal demeanor as Mike Tyson. So to me, it seems pretty believable, but it would be hard to accomplish for me. Yeah. Yeah, because it's vocal, it's physicality, like we heard in the clip, but also it's, you know, their personal life, their professional life, the way that they they process things. You're kind of taking out a lot. But also the question is, how well do we know Mike Tyson, like, you know, people who are going to see this miniseries, how well have they delved deep into Mike Tyson before judging the portrayal of Mike Tyson? Uh, Grant, your thoughts. Boy, I, I have to tell you, as someone coming to this non-visually, um, one thing I always experience when others are trying to portray people on screen, on stage, is, you know, someone will go, uh, wow, this is like a perfect, incredible lookalike. This mm. this was cast perfectly. And then I listen to them and I go, this sounds absolutely nothing like them. Their, their voice is 100% different. And people say, oh, I, I, I didn't even think of that. <laughs> um, and that is something that I find truly fascinating because if you, Ramya, <laughs> or I were doing the casting, we would probably look for some uh, very very, very distinct qualities from what other people are looking for. Because, you know, people say that the eyes are the window into the soul. I kind of, for me, it's the what people say and how they talk and mm -hmm. their, their voice. It's really how I get to know people. So I, I've always found that fascinating. Yes. And I, I know exactly what you mean. And it's something that honestly, I haven't even necessarily made a big deal of in the past, but I've always thought it in my mind. I think, okay, yeah, I've decided people are saying it's good, that it must be good, but it definitely, you know, Beyonce doesn't sound like Etta James or uh, mm -hmm. Jamie Foxx doesn't sound like Ray Charles. And it, it's a, just that point of 
man, I just wanted to say super hearing, but you know what I mean? It's that point of like, we tap in with our <laughs> ears. So, so it feels a little bit uh, dissatisfactory when you hear the person and you think, okay, yeah, I can hear it, but it's not perfect. It's not, I, can't, I will not have that reaction that people have visually. Um, so- and you can't, you can't fundamentally change someone's voice. Like, you can you can try and and make it sort of sound kind of sort of ish the same way but that's why people in our situation who have low vision were like yeah but you kind of missed the boat on there and then it takes that uh person with vision to go oh yeah i never thought of that because why they're so immersed into something that we're not and i can see a little bit but you know, I do still miss some of the facial features, so audio is where I turn. Yeah. But it's it's hard to just completely, you know, reenact someone's voice because everyone has a little bit of different innuendos oh. in their own voice. So it's, you know, it's hard to do that. Absolutely. Uh, guys, I want to get to one more real quick thing. Jeffy, we're going to skip to the last clip. The shopping habits of Americans have really changed and retails are, retailers are feeling it. Consumers are wrestling with higher prices, inflation's hovering near four-decade highs, and that's being felt across the retail sector, with few exceptions. Shoppers are trading down. They're buying cheaper brands, looking for discounts, and even making fewer visits to stores. They're cutting back on new clothing, electronics, furniture, and almost everything else that's not absolutely necessary. Macy's is reporting its sales slipped about 1% in the second quarter, but that was better than expected. It's cutting prices as it tries to unload a glut of unsold inventory. I'm Rita Foley. So just a quick response on this grant from you. Are you one of these people? Are you still shopping the way that you used to? Or was does this not apply? Not applicable? <laughs> no, I would I would say this is this is certainly applicable that I think we're experiencing a little bit of the reality of inflation. The cost of living are going up. Maybe the quality of living is slipping a little bit, hopefully not too, too bad. But um, I I would say this vibes with uh, my reality uh, Mm. and my lived experience as well, that things are just so expensive. Food is so expensive. Um, other essentials are so expensive that uh, it's uh, it's really incredible, and it does lead to some fear, a little little disconcerting uh, thinking about the future. Yeah, and we we were hearing it from small retailers, you know, mom and pop shops. But when you're saying you, something as humongous as Macy's is noticing how big of a change people are going through, and it's really really affecting the overall. Uh, way of life and way of business, then that is a pretty big concern. Brocky? Yeah, that pretty well depicts my way of living. Things are expensive. I look in my cart uh, constantly and go, yeah, but what did I buy and how did it get to be so much? Like, uh, you know, when I don't buy meat and it's like, how did I get over $150 and there's no meat in my cart? Yeah, I'm living that life. I know. Grant, thank you so much for your time. Uh, We really appreciate you coming on the roundtable, and hopefully you will be back sometime soon. It's always a blast. Have a good one, guys. We didn't scare him away. Grant Hardy, our reporter in Vancouver, joining us on this week's roundtable, along with Brock Richardson. We'll be back. We're going to wrap up the show after the break. 
This is Kelly and Company. We're just about wrapping the show here on a Thursday afternoon. And we didn't really discuss weather today, but it is nice and cozy. This is the way I refer to gloomy nowadays. Nice and cozy for you to relax indoors with an audiobook. Just hanging out, enjoying if there's still rain outside, the rain. And if there isn't rain outside, the sloshy sound of the cars on the wet street. So if you're into that, it's a really lovely day for it. And uh, you can curl up, if not with an audiobook, with a podcast. And we'll give you some highlights from today's show that you can check out on your favorite podcast pod, uh, platform just a little while after the show. They will be uploaded. So, Brocky, I'll start with you. A highlight from today's show. I'm going to give you two. I'm going to tell you that I really like um, uh, Mike Fair's... Uh, uh, let me see if I can get Moriarty? this right. Mm. Moriarty, the Devil's Game. I, I listen. I love Mike Fair's passion. I said it on the break uh, after we did the segment. That guy comes on and hard hits you uh, week after week on Thursdays. You know, really kicks off the show well, and he's just passion for everything he brings. And this week was no exception. I mean, he literally said that. This um, audible uh, thing you can get is uh, is really good, and he told us that there was nothing missing from it. And most weeks, Mike will say, "Yeah, they could have done this or that better," but <laughs> this one, not not at all. And it's free for uh, Audible Plus members, which is very very cool. The yeah. other one I loved as well was Fern Lullum discussing uh, Disability Day, which is on December third. And some of you might be wondering out there, you were a little early. And as we mentioned on the segment, um, you know, you can never be too early on, you know, disability advocating. I think she did a really wonderful job. We got through a lot of great stuff on her script. So those are two things that I highly recommend you go back and listen to. Love it, Brocky. Yeah, two really fantastic conversations that we had um, talking to Luca DeMontis about blind hockey and then following it up a little bit before the buzz with Bill was also fantastic. So just great conversations all around. Did I say round? I meant round table on today's edition <laughs> of Kelly and Company. So check it out on your favorite podcast platform. Uh, we don't have any teasers for you for tomorrow's edition of Now with Dave Brown, but do want to remind you that you can check out Now with Dave Brown, 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio and AMI-tv. Dave Brown always has a fantastic lineup. Rocky, thanks for joining me today. This is just the beginning of your fill-in for us because you're not here tomorrow, but you're here all next week with Kelly on the show in place of me. So have a fantastic couple of shows. Will do. And we're in studio next uh, Wednesday. So that'll yeah. be really cool. Oh my God, it's going to be so nostalgic. Have fun. Will do. On tomorrow's edition of Kelly and Company, where Kelly will join you on his own, he's talking about a tool that detects uh, browsers when they're trying to track you in-app. John Beeler is going to give us the details on that. Mike Shorman is in his quest to conquer the Great Lakes this summer. This is a really fun project that he's been up to. And Karen McGee is going to update us on how he's doing. The audiobook Hair Love by Matthew Sherry is bringing important conversations of representation to the forefront, specifically about the Black community. And Ryan, who is going to highlight a little bit of that on the Chatty Bookshelf. Tons more on tomorrow's Friday edition of Kelly and Company, where we help you 
open the gateway to your weekend. So until that show at 2 p.m. Eastern time, have a great rest of your Thursday.